morning. We're going to be reading Matthew 6, 9 through 15. All right. Pray then. Uh, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. All right. Good morning. Okay. Um, That marriage one day thing, people used to, like we we did it last year, we're like, we're having a marriage one day. And and people would read it and they thought it was all for single people. They're like, marriage one day. Kind of thing. (laughs) But... It's next weekend. It's next weekend. So that's possible too. If you're like, I don't know, marriage one day, come. (laughs) We'll equip you for that one day. Um, uh, Okay. So we are, uh, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in our like four-year journey of Matthew. Um, This is week 37, I believe, uh, of Matthew. We made it to chapter, halfway through chapter six. Um, There's 20-something chapters. It's fine. We're okay. Where are we going? We're not going anywhere. Um, um, okay, so we're, we're specifically in the Lord's Prayer, and we're working our way through this line by line because uh, we need to know how to pray. There is a posture. It's a spiritual discipline. There's a, a, a way it's meant to be done. Um, and a little refresher. Let's start with a refresher. So it starts off, uh, Jesus says, this, this is how you should pray. He's going to make it very simple. He's going to tell you how you should pray. And it starts off with our Father in heaven. First thing is to understand you're approaching God not like you're approaching an angry king, not like you're approaching um, an emperor, someone you need to please, someone that's angry with you and you're trying to win their approval. You're, you're not approaching that person. You're approaching a father. You're approaching um, someone who, whose approval and love and and whose affection you already have. They see, he sees you. You're his child. Um, my children don't need to win my approval. They have it because they're my children. This is who you're approaching when you, when you start off in prayer. Um, second, from there, you move to hallowed be your name. So first you're going to put God in God's place. You're going to approach knowing that there's nothing to do other than approach. There's no fear involved. There's none of that. You approach, and then hallowed be your name. Hallowed at the center of this word is this word, hagios, which means holy, which means separate. Um, Because there's a pantheon of gods in your life who are calling for your attention. There's people every single day who are telling you, here's how you should think. Here's how you should act. Here's the groups you should be a part of. Here's the parties you should be involved in. Here is the the way you should dress, the way you should think, the way you should talk, um, the way you should engage with the world around you, what you should achieve, all of it, right down to like, here's how you should look. Um, And in prayer, we wipe all that aside, all the, just all of that, all the lords that are demanding that we, that we please them and live up to their expectations. We wipe it all aside and we say, no, in prayer, as it should be in the rest of life, but especially in prayer, because this is a discipline, um, God is holy, different, far and above, and separate from any other thing. God will have the authority. 
the Lord. That's what that means. And then, once God is in his place and you realize it's separate, it's, it's different, and, and it's, it's not like all the other lords in your life, um, you're going to pray. In verse 10, there's, it's what's called a parallelism. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, you're not praying for your will. You're not approaching God saying, God, there's a lot of things I'd like. Here's my kingdom I'd like to see happen in this world. Um, I'm just going to lay it all out for you. Here's all my requests. You're not asking God to bow down to your kingdom. You are affirming that God knows what God's doing. Here we are. We've, we've been brought this far through time, through space. We're on a rock flying through space right now. He's guiding things. We're okay. All right? Um, and it's as, as your will, your desire, that's, that's what I'm going to make mine. So we're not, we're not demanding our will, our will and our way. We're asking for God's. And so once God is put in God's place, there is part two of the, of the sermon. It's split into two parts. And it starts off, give us today our daily bread, what I need today. Just lay that out. Father, I trust you for what I need today. Tomorrow, yes, there will be things, moments of, of, um, of scarcity, what, what appear to be moments of scarcity, moments of um, fear and trembling, also moments of beauty. But today is today, and all those things are present today, and I will pray for them today. Tomorrow, I will wake up and do this again. So it's asking God for today's needs. And then it moves back in verse 12, and it moves forward in verse, 10, verse 13. Um, in verse 12, it says, forgive us our debts. Verse 13, it's, it's um, don't lead us into temptation. Don't allow us to be taken down by all the things that are demanding we worship them. So, this is the Lord's Prayer. Today, we're going to focus specifically on verse 12. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This one is, is weighty and difficult, and it actually is a lot more difficult than you probably realize it is, and I'm going to give you the gift of making this passage difficult for you. <laughs> That's for you this morning. So, why don't we pray, and we'll jump into this, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving... Um, these texts down through the ages. Thank you for the, the people who wrote them, the people who struggled over them, the people who walked with you, knew you, followed you, failed in your presence, and received your love and your grace. I ask that we would learn to be those people, that we'd learn to be honest before you, and, and we'd learn to be steadfast, and we would learn to, uh, to take seriously what you would like us to do in this world, the mission that you've laid out before us. Thank you for this community. It's beautiful. Thank you for the, the, the body of Christ gathered here, all its intricate many parts, all shapes, all sizes, all ages, all of it. We gather together as one people to do the work that your son Jesus did here. Help us to do it well. Speak through me, allow me to be present, and allow me to remember the things I've studied and communicate clearly. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so forgive us our debts. Um, some of your versions, some of your translations will say forgive us our transgressions. Some of them will say sins. Uh, some of them will say debts. Um, um, Luke, in, in the book of Luke, when Luke is quoting the Lord's Prayer, he actually puts trespasses. Um, there's, there's lots and lots of words in Scripture um, that would describe this idea. That's because um, in English, we tend to have one word for sin, and that word is sin. And, uh, but we don't realize that there's actually five different words in the Scriptures that make up this idea of sin. And when you understand those words, you start to actually understand what sin is. And you start to say, oh yeah, I believe in that. That's a real thing. Okay? Because people don't like to talk about sin. They don't, 
They don't, it's a very spiritual sort of nebulous idea. Um, uh, the words of the, that are used in the scriptures, the Greek words there, they had meaning and purpose in their time. We're going to look at those. There's five of them. So the first one we're going to look at is the one I looked at last week. I talked about it briefly, and I've talked about it recently. The word is hamartia. Hamartia. There we go. I didn't do that first service, but maybe I'll do it this time. Who knows? Um, hamartia is an ancient archery phrase. It means missing the targets. Um, you were meant to be something, to do something, to accomplish something, and you did not. Um, there is this poet named uh, Edwin Muir who, who like brushes up against this idea, and he does it in a beautiful way. He says this, after a certain age, all of us, good and bad, are grief-stricken because powers within us, which have never been realized, because in other words, we are not what we should be. Um, there is a time in many of you are young, early 20s. In that time, you tend to look at life and you tend to think, I've got plenty of time to become what I should be. And you say, um, I should be a more loving, caring, gracious person. I should be more generous. All that will come in time as I'm equipped with all the things, right? Like, uh, when I get a lot of money, I'll be generous. By the way, no, you won't. You'll be exactly what you are now. Um, when I, one day I'll do this. One day I'll be this. So when you're young, you're looking forward to this thing that you, that you know you ought to be. And you plan on being that thing. When you start to get up in age, I'm, I'm uh, like two or three years from 40. I know, you wouldn't know. Um, two or three years from 40. Uh, and I start thinking things like, there's lots of things I, I could be if I would, if I would try. And I, I could make those things right. I could fix them all. If I tried, I know I'd be successful. And then you get older and you look back and you think of all the things that you, sh- that you should have been. The things that you never were, um, the things that you could have done had you tried, the things you could have been and become, and the ways you could have changed your life. Um, Hamardia, all of it. Um, it's all through scriptures. Um, all kinds of people are described as um, here's how you were meant to be, but here's how you are. None of us can, can honestly say, I am, as, I am as, as good of a husband as I, as I should be, or as good of a wife as I should be. I am as good of a, of a mother or father as I should be. I am as good of an employee or a, or a follower of Jesus, or a, as, as good of a, of, a, of, a, of a forgiver and a generous person as I should be. None of us. Paul would describe it as, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. The word glory, uh, in, in, the, in the ancient Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word kavod, which means weight. It actually is a word that would be used to describe like someone gasping, like, oh, like when you see something beautiful. For all have fallen short of that weight, that glory. The word hamartia is there. Um, so that's the, first, that's the first idea. I'll keep moving. Um, the second idea, second word is paraptoma. Para means uh, beside, um, separate from. And uh, batoma basically is, it's an accidental stumble, it's a trip, it's a slip. The word can be translated to slip across. That's the best way to translate this word. Um, it's not intentional. It's more, I was in a situation where I ought to have been more careful, and I slipped. Um, because words slip out that you shouldn't have let slip out. Actions slip out. We, we, what do we say? We fall into things, right? Um, we fall into an affair. We fall into sin. 
Um, that's what this is. It's not necessarily intentional. Some, some people um, work in maybe in a career or something where you are regularly interacting in spaces where it would be easy to fall. Um, and and we know, you know, like, I have to be more on my guard, more careful. Um, I don't want to hurt people here in this situation, in this place. Um, that's peroptimai. There's a, there's a word which is very close to this, which is the, the third word. It's parabesis. Um, parabesis. And, and it's basically remove the accidental thing, and it's like just stepping over the line. It's a purposeful... Um, it, this word imagines a line uh, where on one side things are, are the way they ought to be, and on one side they are not the way they ought to be, and it's sort of stepping into that. On one side maybe you have honesty, and on the other side you have dishonesty, and it's kind of, it's kind of just crossing that line into dishonesty, willfully for whatever reason, to protect yourself or whatever. Um, there is there's a line between compassion and, and maybe disdain, or empathy and apathy, and sometimes we cross that line. So it starts, there's, there's the accident, accidental crossing the line, and then there's the purposeful crossing the line, and then there's like a level three of this whole thing. It's anomia, okay? And it's just lawlessness. It's ignoring the line. The person who is lawless, who is anomia, is the person who, um, when they are kind, they are kind because they're trying to get something. And if they could get that thing by being mean, they would. Lawlessness. It's as if there is no line, there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no ought to or not ought to. Um, and we, we, we come up with reasons and justifications for this way of life. Um, that it's just, it's lawlessness. Um, and the last word, the fifth word in scriptures that, that we translate as sin is, is ophelema. I want you to say this one, ophelema. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. Um, and it's basically, it's a failure to give what is due. Um, it, that's why it's the word that Matthew uses here in this prayer. It's translated as debt in the, in the book of Matthew, um, in, in the NIV. Um, sometimes it's transgressions and sometimes it's... it's uh, I would argue ophilema is a word that encapsulates sort of all of it. Because you ought not have missed the target. Um, you ought to have, have more sure footing in that situation. Um, you ought not to have crossed the line. Um, you ought to know that there is a better way. And so it's, it's, there's a way you should be, but you're not that. Okay, that's ophelema. There is, um, you know inside of you that um, you owe, because of the amount of grace and mercy that's been poured out upon you, you, you should be acting in a specific way and sort of um, responding in a way. But you're not. So that's, it's translated as debt. Um, and so these are the five words. Um, but when we look at our passage, it says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Um, so there's, there's this request to God, to the divine. There's this request to, I need forgiveness. Um, and then there's this request to people. Um, people need forgiveness as well. And, and I forgive them. So th- there is this relationship that goes both directions. Um, but there's something really difficult in here that people don't like to talk about and people don't like to explain. There is a connection that we don't like to make. Um, we are uh, post-Luther people who have a specific understanding of salvation and God's interaction with us. Um, but the fact is, if you were to actually literally word for word sort of translate the, the idea here, I mean, think about this. Forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. Sometimes people will say, as we are forgiving our debtors, that means that like we are forgiving our debtors. What Matthew is saying is there's a connection. What Jesus is saying is there's a connection. If you're really going to literally translate this idea, it's really going to say, forgive us our debts in proportion as we forgive our debtors. In proportion. People like to say, uh, that can't be true. That's impossible. That doesn't fit in with my systematic theology. Um, that God's forgiveness um, would be dependent upon my forgiveness because... Um, Forgiveness is like a Christmas present, and even though I didn't buy anyone else one, I still get one, no matter what. This is how kids think, by the way. Um, even though I, I didn't get anyone else one, I still receive one. However, Matthew goes out of his way in the very next phrase. I'm, gonna, I'm really going to mess with your theology this morning, because this is here, and we need to deal with it, right? Um, he goes out of his way two verses later. Two verses later. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And we like to ignore these passages. And we like to pretend like that's just a one-off. That's just one passage. But there's lots of other passages that say other things. Um, I'm going to show you a lot of places in here today in the scriptures that say this. It says it a lot. Um, But again, we're post-Luther, you know, people... We're post-enlightenment people. Um, we are children of this thing that kind of started with this guy named Augustine. We all know Augustine. We, we, we love Augustine. He was great. But we don't realize that um, <clears throat> Augustine came to Christ out of what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this thing that looked and sounded a lot like Christianity, but it wasn't Christianity. Um, at the heart of Gnosticism was this idea that... The flesh, everything you can touch, matter is evil. And the point of life is to escape matter and fly away as a disembodied soul. Now, I was raised Southern Baptist, um, and I was kind of taught this. Gnosticism. It has worked its way into Christianity. It was unavoidable because it's where some of our, our founding fathers came from. Augustine didn't realize how much of this he had brought in. Um, and you, if you follow the line of Augustine, it goes straight from Augustine, who, doesn't, who didn't realize he had brought some Gnosticism into Christianity. Um, and then you have Anselm, who builds off Augustine. And then you have Luther and Calvin um, in neighboring countries who built off of um, Anselm. And then you have like this whole post-Enlightenment thing. You have Descartes and you have all these people like, who, who build off all these ideas. But there's a central thing that has kind of been ignored. In Gnosticism, at the very beginning of Gnosticism, you kind of learn that um, it's all about mentally ascending. It's about knowing. Because if you know, then you are. Then you're free. Just knowing is the whole thing. So it's all about information. Hopefully I'll make this clear for you in a couple minutes here. Uh, Descartes has this phrase, and he says, um, I think, therefore I am. It's a philosophical argument, right? I must exist because I'm here thinking about existing. But this idea is... Influenced by Gnosticism, I think, therefore, I am. Christians kind of say, I believe, therefore, I am. But we have misinterpreted belief in a specific way that it's very Gnostic, and it simply says, I have mentally ascended. I have got information, and I put it in my brain. But knowing something, knowing that someone, someone is ruling a certain country does not make you one of their followers, does not make you a citizen of that country. Just knowing facts. The word faith, 
in a first century Jewish context, if you go back here to Augustine, he separated from Judaism by 300 years. Um, and the Jewish people had this kingdom mindset. In a kingdom, there is a Lord. In a kingdom, there are citizens. In a kingdom, um, there is allegiance. You know what the word for allegiance was? It's this, it's this Greek word, pistis. That word in the Bible we translate as faith. Allegiance, faith, faithfulness. So faith is actually a verb. Faith is, um, G- when you say Jesus is Lord, you're not just saying you know something. You're saying, no, Jesus is my Lord. I, I have commands. I live by them. There's, I have, um, let, me, let me show you some scripture, okay? Matthew 10. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This is kingdom talk. This is kingdom talk. Um, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And you go a little farther. Um, the book of James. Okay, the book of James was a huge problem for a lot of people who didn't, who didn't realize that Gnosticism has made its way. Luther actually ripped it out of his Bible. Martin Luther ripped it out of his Bible because it didn't fit his system. I mean, how many times have we done that, though? How many times have we just ignored something in scriptures because it didn't fit our system that we're living in? So he's no different than we are. But in the book of James, it says this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And then he says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, There's this passage in the book of Romans at the very end of the scriptures where God describes his people in the world. And he describes them as um, those who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Now, this is all very complicated. This has always messed with my theology, and now it can mess with yours. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, But these are passages in the Bible. They are there. They are meant to stir. They are not meant to be taken and crammed into systems. And math equations to say, how exactly does this work? Yes, your enlightenment brain really wants to do that. Maybe you should stop for a while and we should ponder the prayer that Christ is asking us to pray and ponder, like, feel it. Don't figure it out. Feel it. Pray it. And watch what happens. What if we prayed this? Lord, forgive me in proportion to my forgiveness of others. What if you prayed that? I mean, that's what Jesus said. When you pray, pray this. Like, I don't really want to pray that. There's a lot of people I don't forgive. Do you feel the weight of that? You're supposed to. I would argue that maybe some of these things aren't supposed to be figured out and known. We sang a song at the beginning, like the first song we sang today starts off, God, you are a mystery. I was kind of raised being taught God is not a mystery. We figured it all out. It's all systems. It's this and this and this and this and this. But in order to get there, I had actually probably ripped a bunch of things out of my Bible. There is this relationship. If, I mean, okay, so ponder this. Lord, forgive me in proportion to my forgiveness to others. Now, imagine if you actually prayed this. Imagine, uh, for those of you who have children, like if my son, if my eight-year-old son came to me and said, Father, like, like Father, Father, Dad, um, I screwed up and I hurt somebody really bad. I said some terrible things. And I said, them, uh, I said bad things about you too, so I need your forgiveness. But I only want you to forgive me um, um, as much as I forgave so-and-so when they did it to me. 
um, I'm going to pour all the forgiveness I have out on that kid because he gets it. He gets that he doesn't deserve it. And so I'm going to give it to all of him. It's like that old George Washington story where he chops down the cherry tree, right? And he's like, he's like yes, Father, I chopped down the cherry tree. And, uh, and his father's just like, I, you've, made me, you've made my heart sing. You've made me joyous and happy because you've told me. And you've confessed. There is this posture because this is relationship. This is not just a whole bunch of laws and a system laid out. There is a mind and a heart to the whole thing. It is a discipline. If you are praying this and you feel the weight of that, that will change you. And what if you replaced forgiveness with like grace? Give me as much grace as I give other people. Give me as much mercy as I give other people. Give me as much, you know, be generous. Be as generous with me as I am generous with the world around me. That's convicting. That, that brings about what's called repentance and change. The prayers are important. The discipline is important. The thought process behind the whole thing is important. There's this, um, there's this place where uh, Peter, I mean, Peter gets a lot of flack. He says some really stupid stuff, admittedly, throughout scriptures. Um, but he ended up doing this incredible things for God and suffering and dying while declaring the love and reconciliation that God offers. Now, there's this one place in particular in Matthew chapter 18 where Peter comes to Jesus and he says, uh, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, um, when you're reading the Bible, look for things that kind of stick out to you and ask questions about them and do some Googling, do some reading, do some research about them. Um, because there's some stuff that sticks out in here that should sort of raise some like, questions. Um, what's with the seven thing? Did he just pick a random number? Why is he asking about forgiveness? Was there something else going on? Was there other conversations happening at the time? Um, because we want to be good theologians, and I trust you're being good theologians, and asking lots of questions about the Bible, and then searching for them. It's part of the discipline of study. Um, but yes, if you actually search this, you will find there is uh, something else going on here. There is, up until the first century, there was all kinds of rabbinical Jewish arguments um, about forgiveness. There was lots of arguments going on, but this was one of them. And there was a specific interpretation that all the rabbis basically held, most schools, and then there was a couple that hold, held other views. Um, but the main view that ra- rabbis held in, in the first century when Jesus lived was that you forgive people three times, and that's all for the same thing. The fourth time, you don't have to forgive them. Um, now, they got this from the book of Amos, where spread out over two or three chapters, Amos talks about the condemnation of people whom God forgives over and over, but on the fourth time, he doesn't forgive them and and they go off into bondage. So they read the book of Amos as one whole piece, and the rabbis were debating about this, and they said, okay, so um, I guess we only have to forgive people three times, and that's it. So you'll see this a lot in first century writings and beyond. You'll see, um, so here's um, Rabbi Jose ben Yehuda. and, and he writes this, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If, if he commits an offense the second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense the third time, they forgive him. And the fourth time, they do not forgive. Very, like, no, that's all. The end. You're cut off. Um, this is how they thought. 
They got right to the point. This is exactly how they thought. So you have Peter coming to Jesus, and he asks this question because um, he's basically taking part in an engagement of, of like the conversations of the day. He comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, that's very generous. Peter's starting to get it. Peter's starting to understand Jesus. So he takes the accepted number. He doubles it, and then he throws one more on top for good measure. All right? He's going far beyond what any other rabbi would say, and he's probably fully expecting to be commended by the rabbi. Fully. He's going to love this. What if I forgave seven times? And everyone's like, whoa, scandalous. (laughs) And Jesus, and Jesus knows what he's doing, all right? He knows. And he's like, listen, listen, punk. I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's equivalent of, that's the rabbinical way of saying a, a billion times. How about that? And where Peter was like this, all of a sudden he's like, oh, okay. I can't, I can't win points with this rabbi. I'll keep trying. Um, and so Jesus not only says that, takes the rabbinical arguments of the day and just blows it out of the water and says never. It never ends. Forgiveness shouldn't end. Never separate yourself from people. Always move towards them. Never give up. That's what resurrection is about. Something is dead, bring it back to life. If stuff can be fixed, nobody's too far out of reach. Don't, don't lock them up and throw away the key. Don't do, no. Never abandon people. Now, 70 times 7. Then Jesus tells this parable which is disturbing. Um, And it's very long as well, and I don't want to read it all, so I'm animating it. Okay? And actually, one of my drawings is screwed up. I'll draw attention to it. We'll move on. Now, there's a master and a servant in this parable that Jesus tells. Right after he says 70 times 7, he goes, there was a master and there was a servant. And the servant owed the master 10,000, what he called talents, bags bags of gold. A talent was the largest um, uh, measure that you could pronounce of, of money in the ancient world. It's like, what's ours? Like trillion? I don't think gazillion is a real word. I think trillion is, right? Okay, so something like that. Um, 10,000 10, of those. And he can't, he can't pay it. He could never repay the, the debt. And so he gets on his hands and knees and he begs the master for mercy because the master says, I'm going to take you and your family and you're going to throw you all into prison um, because first off, I can't believe how you spent all that money. Where did it all go? It's more money than exists probably in the world at the time. Um, and he's, I'm going to throw you in prison because you obviously have, you, you don't care. He gets on his hands and knees and he begs, please, please forgive the debt. Um, I I, I, I wish I hadn't done this. I'm repenting. I, me and my family don't want to be in prison for the rest of our lives. So the master cancels the debt. Um, the guy is excited. He's like, hey, I'm free. So he walks out the door, and instantly, as the story goes, he finds a friend of his, servant number two. Um, this servant owes him some money. The arrow's the wrong way. I apologize. This, that way. This servant owes this guy, owes the first servant, 100 silver coins. Now, um, instantly, this servant, instead of forgiving the other servant, 
goes to him and says, you pay me my money now. It, it literally says he grabbed him and started choking him and demanding his money. He's like, now that I'm back to zero, I need money. And, uh, and he says, I, I can't pay, I can't pay. And he throws him and his family into prison. So, there it is. Boom, prison. Now, this master has other servants who witness this whole thing go down. And they go running back to the master, and the master's really mad. Um, and the master says, how? How could you not forgive him after I forgave you? And the master obviously is going to throw him back in prison and be like, you know what? Dad's back on. In prison you go. Now, I want to read to you the last paragraph of the parable um, just to get you know, the feel of, of what's going on. It says this, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Uh, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I, I've literally seen people stop reading before it gets to that part. Seen that? I'm like, you don't know what to do with that, do you? You're not supposed to know what to do with it. Um, while we all today we like to focus on the bottom half, oh, he threw him in prison and tortured him and all that. Um, you know what the original audience was focused on? There's something else completely happening that we don't see because we're 21st century Americans. Um, there's something else going on, and it has to do with the absolute disparity between the two debts. Now, um, the second guy's debt. Um, the guy whose debt wasn't forgiven, and he was thrown into prison. His debt was 100 silver coins. It could literally fit in your hand. It could be put in your pocket. They were very small. 100 denarii. They could fit in your pocket. The other guy's debt, the debt that he was forgiven of, picture a, a, a large soldier, a large muscly man carrying a 60-pound 60 60 pound bag of gold, and then 8,600 people behind him doing the same thing. If they all lined up, it would go for five miles. It's comical. It's hyperbolic. Jesus is, is being outrageous with this story. And the people are laughing until they get to the end and they realize, oh, this is about me. And this is about those people. I know me. I know I know what's going on inside of me. I know the things that I've done. If I were to be honest and, 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 and just lay all of my thoughts and all of the, the, the bitterness I have in my heart and the hatred towards other people, um, I'd probably be rejected by everyone around me. Um, in a world that loves to expose the sin of others, we're very, we're very slow to expose our own sins. And what we don't realize is the sheer amount and the disparity between the debt, like what God has forgiven you, because you're the servant, the second one. I mean, the first one, I get confused. You're the first one. You're the one that had all the debt, and it was forgiven. That's you. All that you have been forgiven, how dare you not forgive someone who gossiped about you? How dare you? And by the way, you know what, you know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is not, it's not making things right. It's not like entering back into a relationship. It's not like being besties again. It's not, because it probably, depending on what happened, it may never be what it was, ever, the relationship. But forgiveness is, is getting to the point where you say, you don't owe me anything. Like a father and a son, there's nothing to be done. 
There's nothing, there's nothing to be done. Um, forgiveness actually has nothing to do with them. It only has to do with you. It's only something that happens on your side and your heart. It's something that comes from understanding the, the disparity in your soul between how much God has forgiven you and um, how little you're refusing to forgive. Um, but it's difficult. And so you have all these passages in Scripture where God says, how about, how about I forgive you as much as you forgive everyone else? N.T. Wright has this brilliant way of putting it, as he always does. N.T. Wright says this, forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only, room f- there's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. Hold on. Pause. That's huge. Picture that. Forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. Those who insist on withholding it won't be able to take any more in themselves and will suffocate. Now imagine generosity, mercy, all of that worked into this same formula. Our relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship. It's not mentally ascending to something. You are supposed to be a part of this thing. Pistis, the word we translate as faith, is a verb. It's faithfulness. It's allegiance. You're not, your allegiance is not to a set of ideas. It's to a king and a kingdom, which you are a part of, and you are, you are beckoned to take part in it. Um, 500 years earlier, before Jesus, there's this prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, in chapter 5, makes this huge point to let people know that one day there will be a new covenant because you people have screwed up so much. God will make a new covenant with people who are not even, who are not even Israelites, who are not even Jewish. He will make a new covenant. And these people will be marked. This new covenant, this new nation, this new people spread around the world will be known for their ability to forgive. That's what they will be known for. He even literally says in the verse, he says, um, he says, you won't even need to tell them who God is because God will know, they will know who God is because they can see it all over you. God is one who forgives, who is merciful, who is loving, who reconciles, who moves towards people. That's what the people of God should be marked by. Are we known for that right now? We're not. I, I, I don't see very much allegiance to Jesus at all in our sad state of affairs in our world. And it doesn't have to be like this. Um, part, of, part of the solution, I would argue, is the spiritual disciplines and specifically the discipline of prayer. The discipline of, of waking up every day and say, and, and understanding that when Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray like this, Lord, forgive me with the measure that I forgive others. Life-changing, soul-changing prayer. That's what that is. Because it brings your eyes straight back to Jesus. And I, I can't imagine any situation in which if I'm praying this prayer and I look up, God is not just like, it's, it's all yours anyways. Like he says to the older brother, everything has always been yours. All you needed to do was ask but your eyes were never open to it. It doesn't fit nicely into systems. There's give and there's take. You're supposed to struggle. You know what Israel literally means? God's people, they were called Israel. Israel literally means struggles with God. God's people struggle with God. That's what we do. 
We struggle with the idea of God. We struggle with following God. We struggle with keeping God our Lord. Um, we struggle with receiving forgiveness because we can't give it. We struggle. We struggle. That's what the disciples did. And Jesus chooses to keep them anyways and actually makes them his ambassadors to the world. When you pray, pray like this. Lord, forgive me with the measure that I forgive others. Why don't we take communion? Communion is the reminder. You got, uh, communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Communion is the reminder of the trail five miles long of the debts that, um, that we carry. All the ways that we have not been what we should be, all of our failures, all the ways that we have put ourselves before others, all the ways that we have... Um, rip the message of God out of what it actually is supposed to be. Um, and in communion, we remember the body of Christ poured out, the blood of Christ spilled, broken and poured out so that you could be filled. Um, so many of us are not allowing our own lives to be poured out for other people. Um, and and. I would argue there's a, there's a picture there of like how, how can you be filled up when you aren't pouring yourself out? It's just flowing onto the ground. Too many of us are the type of Christians that are just receive, 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 and it all ends with us. If you've been forgiven, then forgive. If you've been loved, then love. If God's been generous with you, then be generous with others. And don't expect what you don't give. All of that is in there to be wrestled with. So pray and have at it. Wrestle with it. We're going to spend some time in prayer right now. Why don't you work your way through the the Lord's Prayer? Um, Put God in his place. Understand your place. Work towards forgiveness. It's not going to happen today. It's a long road. Uh, It starts with putting God in his rightful place, though. Let's pray and let's take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, change us. Make us whole. Thank you for the people here. Teach us to be people who are forgiving, who are loving and generous. Help us to see that um, anything we receive should flow straight through to other people. Let us bring healing to our world. Forgive us of our sins. All the things that we, that we should be that we are not, forgive us. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.